So John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28, and again, I'm going to read through verse 16 in chapter 19. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered them, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he have made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivers me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat, the place called Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, 
we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is a heavily narrative portion of John's gospel. After chapter 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer, we see the events unfolding, this trial of Jesus. As Jesus, uh, as Jesus is falsely tried and accused, uh, this passage in particular bears a ton of weight because this, these are the events that lead up to, specifically in verse 16, the second half of verse 16 and in 17, where uh, they take Jesus to be crucified. John Steinbeck is an American novelist. Uh, many of you know his name because in school you probably read something like The Grapes of Wrath or Of Mice and Men. Um, but he has a very short little story uh, called The Pearl. And The Pearl is about a poor pearl fisherman. And it's a fisherman whose uh, his name is Kino. Kino has a wife and he has a son named Coyotito. And right at the beginning of the, of the tale, uh, Kino's son, Coyotito, is stung by a scorpion. But being poor, Kino cannot pay for the treatment. And so he immediately goes diving for pearls, as a pearl diver would do, in order to see if he can find a pearl of great price in order to uh, pay for the care that his son needs. And in this process, Kino finds an enormous, immaculate, pristine pearl. And he knows that the pearl can cover the medical expenses uh, for his son to receive the treatment for this scorpion sting that he's received, and a whole lot more. Kino, with his family, sets out to then sell the pearl in a neighboring village, but along the way, he's attacked by thieves and those who want to take the pearl from him. And when Kino reaches the village, he finds a, a scene that's even bleaker. He thinks he can sell the pearl for a particular price, but all of the pearl buyers in this neighboring village have made a pact with one another that they won't buy the pearl for more than a, a, a very small sum. So, in opposition to Kino's wife's urging, he decides to continue his journey, go to the capital city, where there's a whole lot more uh, opportunity to sell this immaculate pearl. And on the way to the capital, they're attacked again. Kino's wife tries to, at this moment, throw the pearl into the ocean. But Kino stops her. Things continue to go from bad to worse on this, on this journey. Kino kills a man in self-defense, and the family is forced to go into hiding and travel a far more difficult mountainous road to the capital than if, they, than if he had not. And in the mountains, while they're in the mountains, Kino spots three men, again, who are tracking them and who intend to, as he overhears them, intend to overtake, overpower Kino, kill his family, and take the pearl for themselves. And so what Kino does is he preemptively attacks these three men, and uh, as he's about to attack, Coyotito, Kino's son, cries, and these men fire a rifle in the direction of the sound. Kino overpowers and kills the three men, but when he returns to his family, he found, finds that the shot had killed Coyotito. Finally, at this moment, he throws the pearl into the ocean. At the heart of this tale, at the heart of Steinbeck's small novel, is the theme of inevitability. The theme of inevitability, that even upon receiving a sting from a scorpion, 
Kino could, even though he found this great pearl of great price, he could not prevent his son's death. His son's death became inevitable. This is a tragic story, a story of greed that overtook Kino. This pearl can cover the cost of my son's medical treatment and make our lives so much better. The greed that grips Kino ultimately results in his son's death. The pearl represents a solution, but it is inevitably a bigger problem, which results in him losing his son. This is a tragic tale, but the theme of inevitability runs parallel to what we see here in our passage this morning. But as the story of the pearl is a tragedy, the story of Jesus is not. These events here, as gruesome as they are, and as silly as it seems, Pilate, the highest secular authority in Judea, who, upon hearing what Jesus had to say, sought to release him over and over and over again, but grew fearful and acted out of this fear. And the inevitability of what unfolds in this passage this morning Ultimately, though, is anything but tragic. Although in these moments it looks bleak. Tragedy leaves things worse than they begin. This is the case in Steinbeck's The Pearl, but it's not the case here at the end of John's Gospel. Because throughout the passage, as we hurtle towards the crucifixion, there is an inevitability. None of which we see in this text is a last-ditch effort. None of what Jesus goes to do, none of what Jesus says to Pilate here is a full court heave down three with seconds left. It's not a final gasping breath. It is exactly what Jesus came into the world to do. So here's what I want you to see this morning as we explore together this narrative. Despite the best efforts of sinful men, Jesus' kingship is inevitable. Despite the best efforts of sinful men, Jesus' kingship, eternal kingship, is inevitable. It can't be upended by the highest secular authority in the land, Pilate. It can't be upended by the corruption of the religious authorities uh, or those within religious ranks. It is, at its very core, Good news, because it is, even in these moments, inevitable. There are two statements that I read in this passage that are going to guide our time together this morning. One is stated by Pilate himself, and then the other is stated by the the chief priests and the Jews. The first is uttered by Pilate in verse 38. He says, what is truth? The second is seen right at the end of our passage in verse 15 of chapter 19. When the chief priests answered Pilate and say, we have no king but Caesar. Both of these statements are punctuation marks on this narrative. They give us a clue as to what Jesus is enduring and what's going on in the hearts of those who are trying Jesus falsely. So again, these two statements will guide our time together. 
what is truth, and we have no king but Caesar. So first, let's look at the Pilate's statement at the end. But we have to look at what everything that comes up to it in verses 20, in chapter 18, verses 28 through then 38, where Pilate says, what is truth? Because this is all the interaction between Jesus and Pilate and then Pilate and the Jews. He's going back and forth. He's walking in and out of his house. He's interacting with Jesus one-on-one, and then he's interacting with the chief priests and the Jews. Jesus brought to Pilate. Pilate asks Jesus, why have they brought you to me? We see this right away in verse 29. Or excuse me, he asks the Jews, what, what accusation do you bring against this man? He asks the Jews this question, and they answer him with kind of a non-answer. If you look in verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? It's just simply, well, he's evil. What accusation do you bring against this man? And they say, he's doing evil. Pilate then has a simple answer to this. In verse 31, he says, well, go ahead and take care of it yourself then. Take care of this situation yourself. You have your own law. Judge him according to it. Essentially, Pilate's heart begins to be exposed even as we, as we meet him right away. Pilate's a coward. He's cowardly. Um, leave me out of this, he's saying. I don't want to have anything to do with your law. But then the Jews tip their hands. They want Jesus dead. The Jews said it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this is true because as Jerusalem was under Roman occupation, uh, they, could not, uh, they could not participate or perform capital punishment. They want Jesus dead. And so Pilate goes then into his house and engages or into his headquarters in verse 33 and engages with, the, uh, with Jesus. He asks him a very simple question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies with a question. Essentially, the question is this. Who's asking? Are you asking or someone else asking? Jesus' question, which he asks in response to Pilate's question, is met with another question. This time, a rhetorical one. He says, am I a Jew? Essentially, I don't care who you are, but what did you say to get these people all riled up? What thing did you do to make them so angry that they want you dead? They just told me that they want you dead. Why? What did you do? And so in this moment, Jesus confirms then that he's a king. In verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus asserts that his kingdom is not here though. Which should be at least some relief to Pilate because this isn't going to be an uprising. But Pilate still isn't clear on what's actually happening. Jesus says his kingdom's not here and if it were here, he would have taken care of business already. And again, no doubt, Pilate is thinking to himself, well, what on earth is actually going on here? Jesus is saying that he is king, but he's not a king of an earthly kingdom. It's not here. Because if it were here, he would have been delivered. He would not have been delivered over to the Jews. But he is a king, and he is here. And you can kind of hear as you're reading this. You can 
hear the exasperation in Pilate's voice as he says in verse 37, So you are a king? And Jesus' response is, You said it. In verse 37, You say that I am a king. And then he gives a purpose statement. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus gives Pilate the real reason he came into the world. And again, who talks like this? Who talks like this? For this, re- this purpose I was born. For th- so you might hear someone say that. Like, I'm talking about my calling, my vocation, the thing that I engage in on a daily basis. I was born for this, some people might say. But then Jesus' second statement, I came into the world, implying that Jesus had a beginning that was not, not there at his birth. We know John's Gospel has told us this several times throughout our time together in John's Gospel, that Jesus is eternal, that Jesus was with God, in eternity past. Jesus bears witness to the reality that he is, his kingdom is not of this world, and he is not of this world, and he has no beginning by simply saying, I have come into the world. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. This is a, when he says that he is born, he's making a statement about his humanity. And when he says he came into the world, he's making a statement about his deity, Jesus, fully God, truly God, and truly man. And he stands on this earth to bear witness about the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to Jesus. Everyone who is of the truth listens to the Jesus. This is what he says. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Christ followers, therefore, those who have been joined to Christ by faith, who are in Christ, these ones are always earnest seekers of the truth. They are always earnest seekers of the truth and fully recognize that truth is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. If you remember back in John's gospel in chapter 8, when Jesus said to the Jews, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But see that this is a conditional statement. He says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is the precondition? What is the precondition for understanding and knowing truth? Abiding in his word. Abiding in his word makes us true disciples, and it is the source of truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That passage in John chapter 8 concludes with this thought, though, in verse 47. Jesus says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. If you do not listen to the voice of Jesus, you cannot know truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, Jesus says. 
All of this narratively is leading up to this question that Pilate is famous for. All of this is leading up to this question that is guiding this point for us. What is truth? What is truth? And now notice, if you look in your Bible at verse 38, you'll see that he doesn't wait for a response. That should indicate something very important to us. He doesn't wait for Jesus to answer that question. But he's resigned. He doesn't think that there is truth. He maybe, as a a Roman citizen, has spent much of his time studying, seeking to understand what truth is and where it actually comes from. But he can't find it. And even though truth in the person of Jesus Christ is standing right in front of him, he is blind to the reality that truth exists and is even there right in front of him. He doesn't wait for an answer. He abruptly ends this conversation. He does not listen to the voice of Jesus and therefore is not of the truth. By asking this question, Pilate shows to what kingdom he belongs. Not the kingdom that's comprised of the truth seekers who listen to Jesus' voice. That's Jesus' kingdom. But the kingdom of those who reject the truth. Who are fundamentally anti-truth. That's the kingdom of this world. So Jesus standing in front of the highest secular authority in Judea. Tells him that truth can be found in him. But the scene ends, or he leaves the room, fully rejecting the notion that truth can be found. What is truth? What is truth? Pilate isn't asking a genuine question. He's showing himself to be jaded and opposed to the idea that truth exists objectively. Jesus Jesus uh, continues then, or excuse me, Pilate continues. He goes back outside and seeks to release Jesus again. He may resign that there is no truth. He may reject the notion that truth can be found in Jesus and him alone. But here he still is on the fence. He says, I can find no guilt in him. But as as Pilate is asking this question, what is truth? So much of what is contained within that question maybe can be found in his his life. J.C. Ryle sums up this question like this. It is a cold, sneering, skeptical interjection of a mere man of the world who has persuaded himself that there is no such thing as truth, that all religions are equally false, That this life is all we have to care for. And that the creeds and modes of faith are only words and names and superstitions which no sensible person need to attend to. It would be good for us to pause here and reflect on our own day and age. Because as we look at Pilate, you probably know men and women in your life who subscribe to these same ideas. Who are are decidedly anti-truth who do not believe that truth can be found, let alone found in one man, Jesus Christ. 
our world largely is one where the idea is of truth is rejected wholesale. And oftentimes it's not people who are, who are super flamboyant about it. Their, small, their thoughts and their minds just drift out of, out of the thought that there could potentially be truth. And the standard position in our world has become that truth is determined by the individual. It's not objective, but entirely subjective, meaning that truth is subject to us as individuals. That it is a a tool which we wield when convenient for us, rather than being something that exists beyond us, that bears on our life, we try and wield it and, and bring it to bear on other things. In our society, what is true is determined then by our internal preference or how we feel in the moment. Pilate's question is one that is asked, asked regularly in our world. And it's not wrong to ask the question, what is true? Because we don't always have the full picture. And so to determine what is true uh, needs to be part of what we do as people. But the question is, what is truth? The question being asked, is there really truth out there somewhere? The answer to what is truth is simply what the individual prefers or feels. And the answer to the question, what is truth, is sure, truth might be out there in our culture, but it's inside of you. I speak my truth and you speak yours. But Jesus' words here cut so fundamentally against the grain of this thinking. What Jesus says in verse 37 to Pilate cuts against the grain of this thinking. He says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come to the world to bear witness to the truth. An objective standard. Not something determined by the individual. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And at the heart of so many modern controversies that we have, at the heart of those is where does truth reside? There are so many things that exist in our world. Is where does truth reside? And if truth resides within the individual, then the conversation about gender identity and sex is a perfect example. We get to a place culturally where those two ideas are separated biologically and internally. The only place we do it is if truth is compromised. We must reject the claim that there is in fact an external standard that's stated by God in order to to parse these ideas out. When God says in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. The only way to circumvent this is to say truth resides not within a stated word, but within the individual. And contrary to cultural assertions, it does not, though, reside within the individual. Rather, it resides within the man who is standing before Pilate, Jesus Christ. If you are of the truth, you listen to his voice. There is no other option. If you are of the truth, you listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. There is no other option. Sure, cultural controversies run rampant, and sure, you can know true things about what's around you, but you cannot know truth 
Pilate, the answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? Again, is standing in front of them. It's not a concept or an idea, but it is a person, and it is Jesus Christ. And so, in order to know truth, we must listen to Jesus' voice. These cultural controversies run rampant. And you're going to say, well, I don't think any of those things. I do think that truth is objective, but don't think that these personalizations of, these, of truth doesn't sneak its way into the church. We as people regularly elevate our personal preferences and ideas and our feelings as a key indicator of what's true. We find that oftentimes our preferences drive our actions far more than the Word of God and what's commanded there. Friends, take an evaluation today. Are you being driven primarily by what you feel or what your preferences are or by what God has commanded you in His Word? This is an important thing for us to reflect on. We continually convince ourselves that we don't have to live according to God's Word because we don't feel like it or it just doesn't sound good or it's not convenient based on our current set of circumstances. This cannot be the case. But the why we do that can be very clearly seen in the next portion of of this passage we're looking at this morning. The why we convince ourselves that we, we can discard large portions of God's word and live the way that we want to live. Or because it doesn't sound good to us ultimately can be seen in the next statement that we need to consider, the statement that the chief priests make in verse 15 of chapter 19, when they say, we have no king but Caesar. And so we need to chase, we need to follow along the narrative here from verse 38 of chapter 18 through this this statement. And after Pilate asks the question, what is truth? He tells the Jews that, again, Jesus is not guilty. He says, I don't find any guilt in him in verse, at the end of verse 38. But then what he does is he says that he can release one man for the Passover. This is a custom uh, that, uh, that the Jews have. And the Jews then demand in response to what Pilate says, he says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He gives them an out. They cry again, not this man, but Barabbas. And then we're told Barabbas was a robber. This is significant foreshadowing what Jesus or what happens here in Pilate's words. In this trial of Jesus, the Jews demand that Barabbas is released rather than Jesus. And this is significant foreshadowing. Jesus takes the place of the guilty man, in this case, Barabbas. And ultimately, this is showing what Jesus is going to do. He's going to take the place, or our place, in his death. Barabbas is an interesting name. Uh, it means we don't know much or anything more about him, but his name means son of the father. You can see it there. Bar means son and Abba means father, son of the father. Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. It reminds me of this song, how deep the father's love for us. 
and I think it's the first verse, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Bring many sons to glory. So Jesus takes our place. He takes the place of Barabbas. And despite our sin and despite our rebellion, despite that we were common thieves and robbers, we who were once enemies have become sons of the Father because Jesus Christ has taken our place, thereby freeing us. And so in the narrative, we see that Barabbas is free. Then at the beginning of chapter 19, Jesus is flogged. A crown of thorns is placed upon his head. He's adorned with a purple robe, purple being a regal color. He's mocked and he's struck. Wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Then Pilate brings Jesus out to the Jews. And maybe this humiliation will stop. I know that they said they wanted him dead, but maybe just humiliating him publicly will be enough. Pilate pronounces again that he he finds no guilt in him. But the Jews are not satisfied. And they want Jesus dead. They shout crucify him. And Pilate says, then do it yourself. In verse 6. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered with new information. We have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself a son of God. And so they've said, he's blaspheming. Now, Pilate is afraid. We see it in verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. The charge of blasphemy uh, against Jesus causes Pilate to be even more afraid. And he doesn't go into detail here, but in Roman Greek mythology, oftentimes deities would take the form of a, of a man and they'd walk amongst the, the people. And maybe Pilate doesn't want to mess with that, or maybe he's just fearful of a Jewish uprising on his watch. Either way, it's clear now that Pilate is operating out of fear. He's a coward and now he's operating out of fear. And so Pilate then goes back to Jesus and asks a new question. Where are you from? But Jesus doesn't answer. He doesn't answer. Pilate appeals to his own authority. Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? But Jesus answers by pointing to where Pilate's authority is actually derived. It comes from above. So Pilate's fear and the lack of guilt he finds in Jesus has him still trying to release Jesus in verse 12. But things are out of hand and now they bring Caesar into it. You're no friend of Caesar if you let this man go. He claims to be king. He's a usurper. And so now Pilate formalizes things. We see in verse 13 of chapter 19 that he sits down on the judgment seat and he makes a proclamation. There's no going back. This is, that's what this is meant to indicate to us. There's no going back. In verse 13, there is no going back. He sits on the seat at the place called Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Sat down. He sits down on the judgment seat. 
Now what Pilate does, no matter how conflicted he is, no matter how many times he's tried to release Jesus, no matter how uncertain he is about what the Jews are saying, that can't be undone after this point. And he says to them, he says, Behold your king! And the Jews want Jesus dead and they shout all the louder for him to be crucified. And he says, Shall I crucify your king? Last chance. And they say, We have no king but Caesar. Pilate caves. He delivers Jesus over to be crucified. And the trial is over. This statement, we have no king but Caesar. These words should resonate deeply with us. Think Psalm 47, 7-8. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And now Jesus Christ has made himself and said that he is one with the Father. He has said that he is God over and over and over again in, our, in John's gospel. But rather than singing praises, the people who he came to save, instead of singing praises to God their king, the people shout for him to be crucified. This heart of rebellion should be a great warning to us. These people who taught, chief priests, Jews, religious leaders, taught the Messiah was coming. The hope of, for generation upon generation, the hope of the Messiah's coming to them to deliver them. And he stood before them, now with a crown of thorns, with a purple robe, beaten. And now, in the moment where he stood before them, they pledge their allegiance to the highest secular authority. And in so doing, finalize their rebellion. Brothers and sisters, our, our, our response to this should not be to think of these people as different than us. We are continually inclined to swear allegiance to false or to lesser kings. We are told to forsake our sin and turn from it, to love truth and cling to Christ. But instead, we rebel and we say, I have no king but fill in the blank. We swear allegiance to the government officials to course correct our societal problems. We swear allegiance to our work to provide for our needs. We swear allegiance to our healthy eating habits to prolong our lives. We swear allegiance to our savings account to get us through economic crisis. We swear allegiance to our ways when before us on your lap this morning contained within God's word are God's ways. Why do we swear allegiance to false or lesser kings? Because just like the religious leadership, just like the chief priests who said, we have no king but Caesar, we like our status quo. Because we know, we truly know, if Jesus is in fact king, and following him does actually cost us everything, then we can't have it our way anymore. We can't be the king. We can't 
find another king who says, be comfortable. You don't have to give up anything. Let me tell you something though. Following Jesus costs everything. It costs everything, but through it, everything is gained. Eternity is yours in Christ. And everything that belongs to Christ, you become the beneficiary of in him. All of it. Many of these people who shouted for Jesus' crucifixion and here swear allegiance to Caesar won't even make it through a generation before their status quo is upended beyond any way that they could even fathom. In 70 AD, Rome, Rome, in in response to a Jewish rebellion, would come in to destroy the temple and over the course of five months lay waste to Jerusalem. Was Caesar the king that could maintain their status quo and preserve their power? Not at all. Not even a generation would pass before everything that they held dear would be ripped away. The promises of false and lesser kings cannot move or be contained outside of a single moment. Yes, Jesus is the king that requires us to give up our status quo and to relinquish our own personal power. But Jesus preserves his people. All the Father has given to him, none of them have been, or can be, stripped out of his hand. But, the earthly powers, the lesser kings, the false kings that promise you so many things on this earth cannot give you or deliver ultimately on any of them. Is swearing allegiance to Jesus Christ costly? Yes. But is more to be gained than ever could be given up? Yes. And infinitely more than that. The death of Jesus here is inevitable, but it's not tragic. It's not tragic because his kingship is inevitable. And Pilate can deny that truth doesn't exist. And Jesus, or Pilate can deny that truth exists. And the Jews can claim that they have no other king but Caesar. And we can and do rebel similarly. But no matter how much people scheme, connive, deny, waver, falter, Christ cannot be dethroned. So there are two very brief things that I want you to take away this morning to consider deeply. The first is this. Truth corresponding with the question that Pilate asked, what is truth? Truth is found only in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of truth. He is truth. He said it in chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is only found in Jesus. If we abide in his word, we are truly his disciples, and we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. We will know the truth, not as something separate from Jesus, but contained fully within him. 
Truth is then, therefore, not contained within you. It's not contained within me. It's not a matter of preference, and it's not what we feel. Pilate was frustrated by the prospect of truth claims. He was blinded to the reality that truth stood in front of him. Are you blinded to that same reality? Jesus stands before us this morning. He is truth. And so the question we must ask ourselves is, are we frequently ignoring the truth of God's word? The truth that he communicates freely to us? Are we subjecting God's word to our feelings? Or our situations or circumstances? Or to the day of the week or how much sleep we got last night? To see what God's word says and then to claim it doesn't matter for us because of our situation in life. Things that you've done or things that you've been done to you. It is to, with Pilate, say what is truth, but not genuinely, in the most jaded way possible. As an excuse to ignore the truth that stands in front of you in the person of Jesus Christ. There's good news if that's you. Repent and cling to Christ. Come to Christ and trust in Christ. He is truth. See his word as final and authoritative. Not just sometimes, not just when we feel like it, but always. Truth is found only in Jesus Christ. The second thing is this, very briefly, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. This is a simple statement and one that we say regularly, but it is true. And it is inevitable. Jesus isn't king when we want him to be. He is always king. Not just when we decide, but always. Jesus' kingship was inevitable when the Jews shouted, We have no king but Caesar. It's inevitable when we shout, I have no king but. Fill in the blank. Jesus' kingship isn't tyrannical. He welcomes rebels into his kingdom with open arms. He freely offers forgiveness and a place around his table. To those who deny him. So friends, if you're here this morning and you stand opposed to Jesus' kingship, know that it is in fact inevitable. It is real. Stop running. Come to Christ and trust in Christ. He freely offers himself to you. Give up your futile rebellion and come to Christ. And trust in Christ. And as the scene unfolds, we see the one man, Jesus Christ, in whom truth resides. And while his friends have abandoned him, while those within his own religion have, have, have said that they want him to be put to death, and while as the highest secular authority in the land, the one who is meant to judge as an arbiter, has now delivered him over, we see very, king, very clearly that his kingship is inevitable and cannot be denied. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for the truth that comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. God, we do not presume this morning to know every true thing. But God, we can with clarity of mind and with full assurance say that we know truth. 
that we know Jesus Christ as the one who has revealed the Father to us. As the one who, as the word of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. God, this morning as we consider and we go from this place all that you have done, God, would we see, would we know in our hearts, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are the one who has drawn us near to yourself. That when all of us in this room denied and abandoned, you held out your hand, you stretched it out to us, and you said, come home. Son of the Father, I have taken your place. Forgiveness is yours. Come home. Amen.